Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show today. We're coming to you from Abilene, Texas. Not just one guest, but two guests. We've got my dad, Larry Norisworthy. Hello, Dad. Hi there. And we've got <laughs> our friend Richard Beck. How are you? I'm good. Glad to be back on the podcast. We are in the psychology department of Abilene Christian University's beautiful campus. Thank you for letting me in. Thank you so much. You're, You're welcome. welcome. You're yeah. welcome. Is this going to be uh, one of the podcasts where you uh, describe it as that you're going to be the second smartest person in the group? Um, the second smartest <laughs> Norsworthy? Maybe I can do that. I don't second know. Second smartest Norsworthy. Yeah. <laughs> Who's going to be the second smartest psychologist in the room? Uh, That's the real oh, question. Oh, I will be. <laughs> I am. No. Uh, does, it, Larry was actually the first uh, psychology professor I ever had. I was going to say that, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Backstory, everyone knows Richard Beck from his blog, and my dad was the one who got him into psychology. So that blog, in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. is credited <laughs> to my dad. I always have thought that. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I thought that too when well, I have delusions. But when, 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 do you remember when Richard first came in your class, like your first impression of him as a student? Oh, I knew he was smart. Really? And, yeah, absolutely. He, I, I he said was, that so surprisingly, like, really? He's, no, yeah, he he's, was he's exaggerating he's a little bit. Yeah. And he was a jock. He was a he was a basketball, basketball player. Yeah, I played yeah. basketball. And back in the days where the shorts were really short. Oh, that's Yikes. not a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I also remember I had a, I had a crazy. Do you, do you remember uh, Judd Nelson in uh, the Breakfast Club? No, and no. Oh, you don't you remember the Breakfast Club? I remember the Breakfast Club. Yeah, yeah. But he like he like wore like a denim jacket with like a. Like black overcoat, torn up jeans. So, I, like I worked that look for a long time. I can completely see you. Oh my god! Do you yeah. have a denim jacket still? No, I got a, I got leather jackets. I don't have a, a denim jacket right now. But uh, but mm-hmm. I, I were like were tore up t shirts to class. It was kind of an eighties punk look. It was of really course, yeah, punk rock. Not, not not the best look, but no. But, uh, Did you have like your Ramon shirt on and all that? You're just no. no I'm literally. We're not too far off the truth, right? <laughs> <here>. <laughs> Well, now, have you explored his uh, talents as a thespian? We did. We talked about one time your your acting background, and you talked about when you were in Europe, and you talked about going to the the plays or something like that. Oh yeah, yeah. We were, went to the Globe Theater. So because Jan is a theater teacher, mm-hmm. and I got into the, you know after I my when I was dunked on um, <laughs> during during a basketball game, I realized I kind of reached my vertical capacity and was looking around for other gigs on campus, and the theater seemed like a good idea. You're not so. going to get dunked on in, in theater. Now, no. Dad, we have talked about his first impression of you. And like My imagination of you when you were a professor in the 80s was exactly how he described it. Goodwill hunting. We were expecting... No, no, no Dead Poets Society. Dead Poets Society, yeah, yes. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Which... That worked a whole lot better before Robin Williams committed suicide. We don't want to connect that to my, my dad. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're not going to do that. But the, the standing on the desk, did you ever do that, Dad? I did. Yeah, Are you saying, he yeah. actually reminded me of that. Yeah, yes. Really I, st- probably because I saw that movie. You, you really stood on the I desk? I stood on the desk, and I was talking about schizophrenia. Uh, I was trying to act out a psychotic episode. <laughs> And, and for students, we weren't sure if it was acting or... <laughs> That's yeah, a good question. Yeah. You went to uh, Tom Cruise on Oprah where he jumped on the couch, but uh, that didn't exist back then. You don't... No, you I don't, don't know that one. You don't know Tom Cruise or Oprah, so that's my fault there. Well, no, I know both of the people. I just don't know that episode. Well, you're missing out. You're missing out a whole, a, a whole lot. Uh, so you, 
were rocking the uh, Richard. You were rocking the denim, the Ramones shirt, mm-hmm. and then yeah. the. Uh, what, what was the hairstyle back then? We've talked a lot about your hair. And uh, I feel like this is a, a lot of hairspray. Really? So. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. It was kind of mullity. Yeah. No, it was yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was kind of mullity, you know. It was, uh, but I do remember using excessive amounts of hairspray. <laughs> Unfortunately, it was, it was, it was. Now, did yeah. you have your earrings back then? No, I got my earring when I came to ACU, and so okay. I had this kind of long hair and a big gold hoop earring. And so, Doctor Hedrick, who was a former chair of the department, oh, yeah. called me the pirate. I look like, <laughs> I, look like a, I look like a pirate. So I had this kind of Johnny Depp. Captain Jack Sparrow look going on or whatever. So yeah, so that was no, that was an ACU thing when I had the. Uh, That's had the right. Ring. Well, he's also famous because he's acted with Catherine Morris. Well, that's true. Yeah, yeah. For the, he was the co-lead in a play, right? For, for our listeners who don't know who oh that is, I thought she was. Or well for known. our host who doesn't know who that is. Oh okay. Catherine Morris uh, is in a series called Cold Case, oh. and she's made several movies as well. Yeah, and so she was a. Um, if I remember, she was a journalism major or something like that. But, yeah, she was uh, um, went off, I think, to Temple afterwards and became a big, successful actress. Wow. Do you feel like a lot of that is due to your work together? <laughs> <laughs> I like to think so, you know, <laughs> that if she's tuning in, that every, yeah. anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll say hi to her anyway. She if, was in my group dynamic class. Right? Wow. Yeah. I seriously have no clue what you're talking about. I, well, I don't watch that show, but I'm sure it's great. Well, she would often refer to Richard as a very handsome That's ridiculous. <laughs> That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. <laughs> oh, handsome Richard over yeah, there. Yeah, right. That's good. Okay. So, uh, subject matter for the podcast today. I was on the old blog, Experimental Theology. Blogspot.com, <laughs> The longest URL <laughs> website still on the internet. I'm still proud of that blogspot. Y- y- Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I am the common man of bloggers. I am, you know. And if you have questions, email them richardbeck at AOL.com. <laughs> <laughs> I still have a – email me at Juno.com. <laughs> Juno. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, and so he has the, the blog that I was reading a while ago, and I think I even ripped it off in a sermon not too long ago. But it was a quote by Carl Jung. Am I saying his Jung. name right, Dad? Jung. Jung. Not Jung. Not Jung. It, it's, it's spelled that way, but it's... J-U-N-G. Why is it mm-hmm. pronounced that way? Is it? I think it's because he's German. Yeah, I don't know. Germanish. All right, he's a German. Psychologist? Psychiatrist? What is Jung? Psychiatrist. I think he's a psychiatrist, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you get, is there a competition between you people and psychiatrists? Is that a weird, like, tension? No, we've already won. <laughs> it's over. No, it we actually have a psychiatrist on, on our faculty. John Cassidy is a That's psychiatrist. Right. And... Um, and yeah, they do. They do. They approach mental disorders and um, therapy very differently. Obviously, psychiatrists are medical doctors, so they're mainly doing psychopharmacology. You know, prescriptions. They get and drugs. Like is that. What you're yeah, saying. Exactly. Psychopharmacology. Right, right. They get drugs. Pharmacology. They get drug yeah. therapy. Yeah. And so, psychologists are obviously doing like you know talk therapy, behavioral mm-hmm. behavioral interventions. Yeah. But, uh, so, yeah. you, but you guys are friends. You guys. Are oh really yeah. Well, well in the professional totem pole, the psychiatrists are at top on the top. Well, that's very humble of you to say But it that, is Dad. interesting that Freud, who started off as a medical doctor, see, he shifted to psychology. So that's hmm. – so we're above would medical. You, you know. <laughs> would you credit that or blame that? Like, uh, um, yeah, I don't okay. know if we want to take credit for that. Okay, so our friend, our German psychiatrist friend, Carl Jung, had the line that you quote on the blog, something about uh, neurosis come from not – Neurosis doing... is the avoidance of legitimate suffering. Neurosis. Is he 
avoidance avoidance of, of legitimate, legitimate suffering. suffering. And I have to first of all say, your blog is the best blog I've ever read. It's the only blog that I've ever <laughs> okay. read. And after reading that, I did look up the quote, and it the quote I found was neurosis is always a substitute for legitimate suffering. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, uh -huh. for those, and I'm sure he said it more than rather, once rather in a variety of different yeah. yeah, I'll go with that. Okay. We'll, so we'll work it, with that. you get neurosis because you're not doing the suffering that is legitimate we need to be doing. What if people are going, what does neurosis mean? That's uh, a Dad, great question. Dad, you want to define that for me? Uh, first of all, it's an archaic term. It's not a term that is included in the DSM-5. Probably the closest. Be, hold on, Dad. If someone doesn't oh. know the word neurosis, do you think they know what the DSM five is? <laughs> do they know what five is? Yeah. They they'll, okay. All right. They got that. Okay. Well, anyway, it's our diagnostic statistical manual. Okay. okay. That's where all the disorders are listed. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, and published that. by the American Psychiatric Association. So, so it all goes back to the so their book. Yeah. So it's the it's the it's the big manual of mental disorders. So if you get yeah. diagnosed by a therapist or a mental health professional, you know the diagnosis is going to come out of that book, the okay. DSM. And, so and today, uh, Richard, wouldn't you agree that uh, probably the closest diagnosis for neuroses would be an anxiety disorder Not in that spectrum? That. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. As a layman, I'm trying to figure out, okay, I'm avoiding suffering. It presents as a neurosis. So I have anxiety. I have some compulsive behavior. I have – is that where we're going with that? Is that the right – understanding? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and anxiety is something that occurs on a conscious level. And if we're avoiding suffering, especially from a psychodynamic perspective like Carl Jung, he would say then repression – You've substituted, you've pushed it out of awareness, and but re, uh, defense mechanisms or repression, as an example of a defense mechanism, they're never fully successful. So it's going to be distorted and come out in a variety of different ways. Okay. And that's what oftentimes we refer to neurosis as a manifestation even on a physical level. So conversion disorder, um, or Con okay, I don't know what conversion is. Let converting me a psychological disorder into a physical symptom. Okay, so for example, if you have someone who's in a stressful time, maybe possibly thinking about leaving the church that he, you know he started to go to a different <laughs> church, and every night about eight thirty he goes and eats a pint of ice cream or orders a pizza. And That's eats called it. binging. Is That's that, an eating disorder. <laughs> is that is that an example? Because I'm not suffering. <clears throat> excuse me, this hypothetical person. Yes. Because he's. Uh, turning every pizza into a personal pizza because of his ability to keep eating. Is that an example of him not suffering well because he's mm – -hmm. oh, is that an example of that, Richard? No, I, it, it could be because when I think of neurosis, and so I, I thought Larry did a great job of explaining it, but I also think of just neurosis as all the kinds of insecurities you know, that we have. Like what um, kind of – well, like low self-esteem, uh, worrying about what people think about you. Yeah, yeah, try, you know, uh, low body image uh, or poor, a poor body image. I mean, so so when I think in perfectionisms and so all the little anxieties that kind of kind of cripple us psychologically or preoccupy us and kind of take up our time and our energy. And so, yeah, so if you were thinking about a, a, something that was causing you pain or anxiety and then you were wanting to cope with that anxiety or that insecurity or those fears by um, eating more than you wanted to eat. You know, that would be an example of that. Oh, so I wanted to eat all so, that. So, so there's a way this of, person did. Yeah, yeah. So I think 
so I think that's a possibility. We don't like being uncomfortable. We don't like being in distress. And so we often seek ways of avoiding that distress. And so we can overeat. We can drink. We can um, deny all repression, Larry mentioned. So we can uh, even pretend that we aren't in distress. That mm-hmm. it, I see a lot of people going around saying, right. um, no, that doesn't bother me. Uh, no, I'm not scared. No, I feel fine about um, things. And so denial would be an example of that. So there, there is a suffering there, but, but people don't want to face it squarely. And so gotcha. they, they don't admit um, things. And that, that inhibits growth and healing because you're not um, – yeah, you have to recognize a problem before you can deal, uh, with, you, it. You can deal with it. And, and sometimes we the, – the fear of opening a Pandora's box can cause us to not do the hard work of, of growing. You think that's what it is that people are scared that if I deal with this pain, then there's going to be a whole closet full of stuff that just dump out when I open the closet door? I think I think that could be a part of it that people feel like they, they can't predict what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I know when I worked in a psychiatric hospital, uh, when people were processing deep pain, they, they really couldn't um, keep themselves together. You know, they they would literally come unglued, as we would say, and and uh, have you- struggle to create kind of a, a coherent sense of self. I don't know how common that is and that's pretty extreme but i do think people fear um what can happen if you do that yeah let me let me jump in and and one of the things that i'm hearing us talk about is almost the psychological disorders and there's definitely a pathological side to all of this it's a continuum though that on the other end of the continuum uh that we all have negative emotions and to me, that's normal. Yet, on the other hand, anxiety, distress, uh, being sad, all of those things are painful. And so we can minimize, substitute that pain for something else as well. Yeah. For some of us who, who hear that and they go, if this is painful and, and I can substitute medium levels of happiness for pain, it seems like that's a pretty good trade, right? And so in my head, I'm going... If I don't have to deal with this, a modicum of happiness is better than a, a good bit of sadness. Right, right. And I, and I think that our culture is, is uh, supporting that particular view. Uh, it might be a stretch, and, uh, and I defer to Richard to see what you say about this, but as I was thinking about your blog, it made me think about positive psychology, and that's a science that really focuses a, a branch of psychology that really works at trying to identify what makes people happy, successful. Um, and if our culture is supportive of that view and that discipline influences our thinking, it would be easy to think, well, then the goal is to always be happy, to 100% of the time be happy. So so back to your statement, yeah, you always want to substitute something painful for something pleasant. Yeah. But the reality of it is there is a lot of work mm-hmm. that needs to be done in order for us to be able to dr- draw closer to other people as well as draw closer to ourselves, to understand yeah. ourselves mm-hmm. better. I, I read this somewhere, and I, and I can't attribute this to who it was, but someone talked about our obsession with being happy causes us to miss like the full gamut of the human experience. If someone is fully committed to always being happy, they literally cannot go into the hospital when their daughter's sick. When when tragedy strikes, they can't be present there. Right. And it seems like that's part of the problem. Is like you're, you're in some ways using a – uh, a credit card like i'm gonna borrow from something i don't have and eventually i'm gonna have to eventually deal with this but it's not right now 
and that's what's going on. Uh, in the blog, you go on to talk about how, in Richard, that you tell your students that mental health is about learning to suffer well, or something to that extent. Yes, right. Mm-hmm. What's what's the exact line? I don't know the exact line, <clears throat> but that was that idea that le- you know, learning. Yeah, mental health is is learning how to suffer well, well to, to to face the pain of life. Um, so it's in a more of a straightforward way, and to sit with the pain, because I think that's what you're trying to do. A lot of our mental health problems, I think, are produced when we're trying to avoid pain, um, and rather than in, endure the pain well. Um, and so the biblical word I think is like perseverance, you know, hmm. to endurance, to the, the idea, you know, face consider all joy when you face various trials because those produce a kind of a character. Yeah. And, and we know we know that we talk about like, you know, being refined through the trials that we go through. So if you're always trying to avoid the trials and we can see this in a culture where like students um, like one of the things I, I didn't tell this in the blog, but one of the things I, I talk to my students about is like they, they'll make a series of like, like life choices and this in late in the semester, you know, it's all falling apart and, and they will come in and say, you know, I, I've, I haven't been in class, you know, in, in months. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and, I, and I'm not saying that they didn't have like, you know, they were like they might have had a the parents were going through divorce. They might have had their own issues or whatever. They, I mean, it's a tough semester. And, and, and so th- they might come in and go, you know, what do we what, what can be done? I go, I, uh, I don't think anything can be done at this point in there. But they can't they can't fail. You know, they can't. It's sometimes things crash and burn and all we can do is grieve those things. Um, but that doesn't mean we don't pick up the pieces on the back end of it. But sometimes what we will, we will sacrifice integrity. We will sacrifice relationships. We might blame other people, all of which is trying to avoid the consequences that, that, are, that are happening. Hmm. And there's a, so we have a whole culture, I think, of young people who actually don't like consequences mm-hmm. of life decisions and will do anything to kind of avoid those or blame people for not. Yeah, and um, it, and it almost sounds like uh, – that part of what we're talking about is something that we have complete control over, that I choose not to face the difficult times. When I started talking about Freud or the defense Uh mechanisms, these are things that happen automatically. And so there is a protection uh, that that, uh, helps us to numb uh, some of the pain that we experience. Something that Luke, you could probably relate to is if somebody was involved in a motor accident, uh, automobile accident, and they're walking around and they're kind of, and it's not because of a head trauma that they are not completely aware or in perspective of what's occurred, but it's just so overwhelming that automatically their system is protecting them from the the yeah. emotional pain of it. So one question: Why could I connect to that? Because I never had a motorcycle. I didn't say a motorcycle, uh, just a motor vehicle accident. <laughs> okay. Maybe I have one and I just blocked uh, yeah, it out. Yeah, no. I've... Okay, so the body naturally is saying, hey, you can't deal with this right now. We're going to shut it down and we're going to shut down your awareness just to get you through this. Right. And by the of... way, I have to go back to that. Motor vehicle also includes lawnmower tractors. Yeah, I had a, I had a rough accident with my dad's <laughs> tractor. We had a hill in our front yard. I don't know how it's possible to total a tractor, but I totaled <laughs> they a don't, tractor. They don't move fast enough to total. He flipped like it. Never was seen it, it five or six times? Well, you've never seen him ridden correctly because I can <laughs> flip him. And I've not totaled. Yeah, that is true. Okay, I remember that. But, like, uh, the, uh, like there, there's scientific stuff that I'm not sciencey enough to know. But, like, when you're, like, in trauma, like, 
all your blood goes to your heart to like, hey, let's protect your heart and your brain because they need to, to, to be able to function, whereas your fingers and all that stuff is not as important. And your body's saying, hey, let's keep you going. And is that kind of the uh, a similar or a metaphor for how we respond to trauma? Like naturally we want to just survive and get through this. But it seems like what what you're telling your students is you have to be able to suffer well. And so you have to fight through that if you want to be healthy. And so if that's the case, when they say, well, what does that look like? Do you, do you prescribe what that looks like to suffer well for them? Well, no, I mean, I don't know if I prescribe it. I, I think the, I think the thing I was trying to get at in it is how, um, our culture, and this goes back to something Larry was saying, has kind of so pathologized negative emotions, you know, like in depression, mm -hmm. like, like that, um, that feeling sad is is the worst thing ever. So gr grief or, or sadness. And so uh, to grieve or to feel sad is to kind of admit a sort of failure. And so we, we've, we've, you know, over. Yeah. So so and so what that means is and I, and I think that leads to a variety of like bad pastoral moves on people. So if somebody mm -hmm. something bad happens, um, if, if there's a death or something, we say really. I think sometimes unhelpful things by um, wanting people to kind of get over it quickly and to cheer up. And because the, because being sad, there's something wrong with being sad. And so yeah. America is so addicted to optimism and energy and um, health that, that anything that is sad. And so, and, and so churches struggle with this, right? Yeah. So if you, if you do a sermon or, or have worship that focuses on lament and anybody leaves feeling sad, that then that was, you know, you know, people are like, why did I come to that? You yeah. know, and, and you can't. And so it's this intolerance. Let me just say it that way. This is intolerance for sadness or grief or pain that causes us to avoid it in kind of neurotic ways. So we, we, um, from blame to denial to over-medication to uh, just avoidance, procrastination. Um, that, that, uh, and so f I, what I tell the students to do is, you know, being, what I was trying to say is that feeling sad, being in pain, suffering, that's just a part of life. It's a part of the growth process. And so you move through that directly, whatever the consequences are. So there's a difficult conversation that you have to have. You have to sit down in front of the teacher and accept their verdict. If you have to make a... If you have to sit down in front of your spouse and say, um, we're unhappy, you know, that that's going to be really painful. It's going to open up some unpredictable things. But the only way to kind of get better in a relationship or to move on with your academic career is just you do go, go through the pain of this yeah. this recognition. And it, the same way, I think, with repentance, to kind of confess something is a very painful thing. And so I think in addiction models, they talk about hitting a kind of a rock bottom and then but, but kind of a, a truthfulness and the pain of the truthfulness, I think, is the beginning point of all of that. But if you avoid it, that's what you see in like alcoholism and other kinds of things. If you just kind of continually avoid admitting the, the pain and sometimes that pain is neurotic pain of like uh, shame, mm -hmm. you know, be, being humiliated. And so we rather, rather than uh, endure the humiliation of the confession or the apology um we pretend it wasn't that big of a deal or it was their fault or yeah. or we just deny it we just avoid it and um i mean i think right now all of our listeners could probably think of somebody right now that there's probably some mending in a relationship they could do but it would just be too painful to kind of even go there so we just kind of go there's it's always just in the back of our mind mm -hmm. is this 
bit of untended to business out there. And so yeah. I always kind of feel neurotically bad about it. Um, and so it, it just stays there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. As I'm here, hearing us uh, talk about this, I, I'm, I'm challenging us to think about it in terms of, are we looking in the mirror? Meaning, are we thinking about ourselves and how we're reacting to these negative emotions? Or are we thinking about we're the person they're trying to support someone with a negative emotion. And to me, that's two different things. Mm -hmm. And yet this one of the similarities, it takes a really strong individual to not be threatened, overwhelmed by the level of distress that we can experience in this lifetime. Uh, and yet I'm 100 percent behind what Richard's saying is working through that, processing that trying to identify things like, well, what were we expecting in that circumstances? Oftentimes, it's a violation of our expectations, but they were unrealistic to begin with. And so it helps us to kind of moderate what we think about reality, and it allows us to accept these uh, painful emotions. A, A minor little point is even the way that we label this negative emotions. I'm I'm comfortable with that, but oftentimes we'll say negative emotions, like negative as if it's bad. So I should avoid it. But I'm with Richard I, yeah. that it's a it's a process of of delving into looking at what does it say about us, what does it say about other people, what does it say about the world. You know, there's a really good book um, that I read a couple of years ago called Lincoln's Melancholy. So it's about the, the depression mm. that Abraham Lincoln suffered. Mm. And, and so it kind of tells his journey because he struggled with depression. He was actively suicidal uh, during his youth. At one point, his friends had to lock him up in a cabin and take all the sharp objects out of it. Like he was literally like put on a suicide watch. Right. And, and, and it talked about how he began to um, – cope with through through faith through um philosophy through poetry he'd memorize these long melancholy poems and Mm -hmm. and he would uh, recite them when he needed to and and but but it talked about how his experience of suffering psychic suffering and depression um had and had given him a, a degree of compassion um but all and also a degree of kind of realism and wisdom that that the argument of the book was made him who he was when it came time to the Civil War mm. because everyone was so optimistic about how quickly it would be over, and he never kind of he never bought into that optimism, and and setback after setback, and he just kind of was able to handle and roll with that, but but also remain very compassionate to the suffering um, that was being inflicted on both sides, and so he was able to say very pastoral things as the war was winding down about binding up the wounds of the nation or like that. And the argument, one of the points of the book that struck me was, is like, if we discovered any psychiatric history with depression or suicidality in any of our current presidential candidates, they would be ruled immediately out of Mm. office because it it would show this congenital defect, right? They were Mm. crazy once. They were suicidal once. But they said it was Lincoln's suicidality and his wrestling with his own inner demons gave him a kind of a wisdom um, and, and again, I don't want to kind of like romanticize depression. It is right. a it is a it is a, a degree of suffering that people who have never experienced it just can't imagine. But but there's also a sense where the 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 gifts of the depressed and the way they see the world and the way they um, 
um, the lessons they can teach us. And I think Lincoln's a great example kind of of the, of the, the wisdom um, that is there because of his suffering. Yeah. Um, that's that's Nowen's uh, wounded healer stuff. Exactly, like yeah. where you learn to mm-hmm. deal with your own pain and your own hurt, and that's the only means, or that's probably the best means that you have of trying to be able to to be a, a, a source of life and hope to someone is to say, "Here are my scars. I've been there too." One of w- one of the things that I found really fascinating, and I think I talked to you earlier today about this, uh, Richard. But in in my interview with Brad Jersick, we talked about in his book he references that Darwin didn't lose his faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, over his scientific findings, but because of the loss of his adolescent daughter, something right. like that. And it, it seems like some some people, they, they go through adversity, they go through suffering, a legitimate suffering, which you should experience if your daughter, if something happens to her, then he can't mend that relationship. That re- relationship he had with the divine was fractured in adversity, and so he was never able to, and, and I'm just obviously speculating, I don't know exactly, but I can imagine for many, you go through that, the relationship with God is fractured, and you can't go back through another form of conflict to get back to where you were. And it seems like suffering is that opportunity to to feel what you need to feel to get back to the other side of where that relationship was before you experienced adversity. Hmm. Hmm. Have you Have you heard that before about Darwin's? Yes, I'd read a book. I couldn't recall the title at the time that kind of talked about the, the trauma of the loss of his daughter because they were very close. Mm-hmm. And I think he kept very personal treasures of hers until, you know, all the way through to his death um, mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think we all know people who experience traumatic loss. And, and, and as a psychologist, you know, both Larry and I are fascinated by the psychology of religion and faith and the interface of belief and suffering. I mean, it's uh, about the about the way some people find their faith to be a great source of comfort and solace in suffering, and other people find it find find that all fairly shattered. And, and I don't have a clear I don't have a clear understanding of why that works out one way or the other. Um, I don't I don't know the answer to that. I think that would be you know it's a it's a mystery, but. I, I do think that you're right in the sense of like the advent of suffering will mark a decisive event in your theology. Yeah. Something's going to happen at that point. It might be traumatically broken or it might reach a new stage, which is why suffering is an important conversation for my students because they're coming in and some of them have suffered a great deal, but some of them still have kind of a Sunday school vision of God. And that, you know, all will go well. And, and, and I'm trying to, when I have these conversations about suffering, I'm trying to prepare them to create theological resources so that when that comes, they're more resilient, theologically resilient, that, 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 that they're able to pass through that with a deeper reconfigured faith. Because you're right, something, a paradigm shift in your mm-hmm. relationship with God will, will happen on, 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 in, in the first experience of deep disillusionment or pain. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah, and in that pain, one of the one of the things that I I generally associate that with is doubt. And I've got this little subjective definition of doubt being a violation of our expectations about what God will do or what He will allow. So I think the the resilient people are the ones that don't limit their faith to what they can understand, the meaning. You know, when I think of Frankel and he says, you know, I can endure any what as long as I have a why. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to push on that a little bit and say, I don't think we always get that luxury of the why. And I think oftentimes that's what faith is, is that in the middle of suffering, we don't have an understanding of it. On the other hand, to suffer well, we've got to embrace it, accept it, 
try to identify what are, are the violations of our expectations, look at how it's, uh, our needs are being neglected in those circumstances, and um, it, it's, it's not always this Western model of coming up with a solution. It's more of an understanding and wonderment and acceptance of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to change gears here. Um, there's something I need to talk about. And uh, okay. I need my father. Uh-oh, uh-oh. And I need oh, wait, but let me say one really – if you were looking for one really profound thing about suffering and being honest and in the moment and mm-hmm. aware, my following statement is not that. No. Uh, it's numbness is dumbness. Oh, I see. So you if you are in the middle of suffering and repression – uh, we are denying the reality of it. Numbness is part of what we're seeking for or replacing it with happiness. Well, I would say <laughs> it might be because it rhymed. Yeah, I mean, exactly. rhymes, well, that's why it's it came much up. True. Yeah. And I worked really hard to slide that in, it, so it I'm was sorry. Very, it was an abrupt transition. When but, I think of uh-huh. smooth delivery, that's that was not it. <laughs> right there at the opposite. No, that was good. Thank you for sharing that. Numbness is dumbness. Yeah, there you go. I'm with it. I'm with it. You're going to get another tattoo once you put that on it. No, I'm <laughs> you don't need more of that Catholic stuff. Just throw numbness exactly. is dumbness. <laughs> Old English across your shoulder blades. Make that happen, Richard. Okay. Um, like I was trying to – this is a serious Sorry. conversation. I need my dad and a psychologist or a psychologist dad and another psychologist help me to deal with this. But there's been something that, that, like a real weird turn in my life, and I don't know how to process this. I really don't know what to say about it, but I feel like you two can help me deal with this. Oh, no. I feel like you guys are not dealing with the severity of this moment as you should. I feel like you're – I need you guys to dial in. I used to, like, just really despise Justin Bieber. Do you know Justin Bieber's dad? I do know who okay. he is. He actually plays the drums really well. He, on, okay, true story. <laughs> Researching this this moment, I text my the one drummer I know. Do you know who that is? Yes. Yeah, yeah, Zach Lynn. Zach, I text him and say, hey, is Justin really a good drummer? Because I, I was trying to be re- – I want to know what, if, if he really is. Um, but I used to really despise him, and I've recently started to like him. Why is that? Well <laughs> – You'll bite. Two things. Yeah, you will bite. Two things. I'm fascinated. <laughs> well, one, I saw that he was going to do a roast on Comedy Central, and this was a while ago. Okay. And – He's going to co- submit himself. He to was. The, it was like a, a kind of a like, shaming exercise. It was. <laughs> he was going to be shamed, and he was going to take his medicine for all the evils that he has brought to society. And I thought, well, that's that's a nice gesture for him to say, "I'm going to atone for some of my transgressions." And then he went down to the Hillsong Conference in Australia. You know, what Hillsong is the big church yeah, down right, there. Yeah. yeah. So he was there, and we, Paul, friend of the show, uh, who's uh, on staff at Hillsong, I asked him, "Hey, did you, you know?" See Bieber, I said, yeah, yeah. And I, was, and I was like, well, did you like drive him around or what? And he's like, well, honestly, mate, um, he said, it's really sad watching his life. And he kind of told me about the paparazzi and how it was just chaotic, even for him all the way down in Sydney, Australia. And then I started to think of him like as a, like a genuine like human being. And I can't hate him anymore. Hmm. I don't know what to do. Is there any way I can fix that? What kind of <laughs> suffering do I need to go through to get back to where I was? <laughs> to get to back where you where – you, Hated Justin yes. Bieber. Yeah. Do you have any ideas? We could try classical conditioning. We could begin <laughs> pairing pairing Justin Bieber's face with some sort of aversive <laughs> stimulus or something. You know, I don't, I don't know something like that. I like that. Yeah. I think that's a yeah. classical conditioning. Well, that's that's yeah. the Little Albert study. Have you heard about this? this is oh like, yeah, yeah, like a famous case. Nineteen twenty. Yeah. So, uh, 
who was it? Watson. Watson. You know, John Watson. John Watson, one of the fathers of behaviorism, um, brought his little little baby out, <laughs> little Albert. That's his name, and, and and presented him with a white rat, with and a loud noise mm-hmm. to scare the child. You know, so every time the rat came out, there'd be this loud noise and startle the child. And eventually, when the white rat came out, the child would begin crying. Yeah, and. Uh, and so is this like classic study in psychology, which I'm sure ethically we couldn't do anymore to children. <sighs> it's a shame. Um, yeah, and uh, but but his fear generalized to not just rats, but any fuzzy object. So even like a teddy bear would or a Santa Claus mask or a, Sa- or yeah. a fur coat. How how sad is that? Yeah, instilling a fear of Santa Claus. Hey, if we can f- instill a fear of Santa Claus in little Albert, psychology can work on the Justin Bieber. Okay, that's good. Because the real problem is, like, I see his humanity, and I don't want to see that anymore. <laughs> I, I want to see him as the personification of young, entitled, um, you know, Western society. Is but you know, didn't Justin Bieber begin on YouTube? He did. So he's just a, he's just you know he was just a, he's a man of the people. He was Canadian mm-hmm. though. Okay. He started as a Canadian. <laughs> And he's you know. he's infested America. <laughs> so, so if so, he started as a Canadian, what is he now? That's a good question. <laughs> yeah. I think that's actually the, the title of his. W- w- yeah. Where am I now? What? There's a new song. I don't know why I'm looking at you like you know. Yeah, the, I don't know what his new the, song is. The new or track album. He has. Okay, well I, I bet he had a Blogspot blog at some point. <laughs> 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 uh, On Juno. <laughs> yeah, that's his, yeah, his email yeah. is that. Yeah. yeah. I don't feel like I've gotten the answers I wanted in this. He's an American success story. Well, if we can't help you with that, that's really a good thing. It is? Yes. We do not want you to reduce uh, him to an object. What if it's an object of wrath? That's a (laughs) biblical concept. What if he was predestined to be an object of wrath? We can pull some Calvinistic theology in there. I think that's a good idea. Well, if he (laughs) is, I think you need to suffer well. Well, I've. (laughs) <laughs> Anytime I listen to his music, I'm so No, oh. I'm, I'm kidding. This has been fun, gentlemen. Richard, you got the blog still up and cranking? Up and cranking every what? every Monday through Friday. Yes. 5 a.m. You've got it mapped out for the next six and a half years? I think I just posted something for mid-December. All right, yeah. Wow. I'm about three months out posting. Wow. That, yeah. Is that a neurosis or a neuroses? Three months out? It's know. a neurosis of some sort. Okay. You well, got to figure to to have a blog, you're you're pretty you're, you're wanting approval of some kind. So yeah. I got I got my issues. Luckily, I'm on a podcast, and there's nothing that's begging <laughs> for attention with that. Your dad is the most <laughs> mentally healthy person of the three by 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 shunning social media. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I'm just a holding out of touch. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, my dad has been second up, stepping up his text game. He's oh. all on the emoji game, and it's pretty strong. So, well done on that. Okay. All right. Well, it's been fun, guys. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.